There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kremitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch Podcast. Greg, we are officially well into spring and on our way to summer. You betcha. You know what, Greg? The fall used to be my favorite time of year. What's your favorite time of year? Yeah, I think I'm still a spring-summer kind of guy. I don't know. You know, if you get a lot of rain in spring, it can be kind of depressing. But I like warm weather, not too hot, just right. You like the Goldilocks exactly. uh, weather, yeah. I like the Goldilocks summer. Well, I can tell you that I've changed. Like, fall used to be my favorite time of year for a couple of reasons, because I don't know, football season was starting or well yep. into way, and you're through the hottest days of the summer, the dog days of summer, so to speak. Start wearing the big sweaters again. But I'm with you. I'm actually more into spring and summer these days. And yeah, part of sure. that has to do with what we're talking about today. And that is, as you know, I really enjoy golfing. I do know that. And it's hard to golf in the fall and winter. It's obviously the time of year now where courses are open and it's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to get outside and swing the clubs. You've done a bit of golf in your past. I have. I haven't golfed in about 25, maybe 30 years or so. Good. Let's go out and play for money sometime. There's, and there's a reason for that, which <laughs> I'll talk about in a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Well, golf is a challenging game for sure. There's a saying there that Steve, our coworker, says. It goes like this, Greg. Golf is hard. Deep. That's it. That's the that's, whole saying. That's deep. That's, that's deep. very, what is it, like prophetic? Yes. Is that a word? Yes. Is that a word? It is. Did I get one? It's a word. Okay, yeah, good, for sure. good. No problem. The problem is it also relates to probability. Golf is all about probability. If you're on the tee box and you're hitting your driver on a long hole, that makes sense, right? Yep. You're giving yourselves the probability of hitting the right range. Exactly. We've talked about this on previous podcasts, you know, when it comes to investing, you have to understand probability. It's crucial because whether you're investing in stocks, bonds, or any other assets, you need to have a sense of the likelihood of success or failure. As you know, there's no guarantees in investing. And so you need to understand probability. And as we just mentioned, the same goes for golf. So when you're on the course, you're constantly faced with choices that require you to assess the likelihood of various outcomes. On the tee box, hitting your driver makes sense. On the green, hitting your driver probably doesn't make sense. Might not be the right club choice. Yeah. <laughs> Let's start by talking about investing. Let's look at some of the ways that probability comes into play when we're making investment decisions. Well, one example is when you're deciding whether to invest in a particular stock. And the way we invest, we don't tend to advise people invest in individual stocks, but I don't want to poo-poo it either. I mean, there's nope. lots of people that do. If you're looking at a particular stock, you'll probably look at something like the company's financials, its growth prospects, maybe its competitive landscape. But you also need to consider the probability of various events occurring that could impact that stock's price. And those could be things like interest rate changes. I don't know if you've noticed, Greg, but the last 18 months, they've gone up yeah, quite I a bit. Yeah, I think they have. Possible regulatory changes. I mean, you could have things like competition bureaus come into play when companies are consolidating with other companies, etc., and even things like economic downturns, because that happens from time to time. There's a lot of data. Data or data? What are we going with? 
I like data. Okay, it was a lot of data to support this approach. I mean, for example, there was a study at the University of Chicago that found that the probability of a company's stock outperforming the market is directly related to its growth prospects, profitability, and financial strength, which I guess kind of makes sense. For sure. And the way we look at probability when we're constructing portfolios or advising clients on portfolios, Greg, by the way, are we recommending the CM Group for constructing and advising on portfolio construction? Yes, I believe we are. Yeah, of course we are. We know what we're doing, by the way. But the way probability comes into play there is when you're building a diversified portfolio and you want to do things like spread your risk across different asset classes and industries. But you also need to consider the probability of certain events impacting various sectors. So for example, last year in 2022, it was all about energy. In 2020, 2021, it was all about tech. And you need to be aware of certain things that can impact certain sectors if that's the way that you're investing. Now, we don't recommend people go sector specific, but that's something to consider. Exactly. And there's lots of data to support the diversified approach. There was a study by Vanguard that found that a diversified portfolio of low-cost index funds had a higher probability of outperforming an actively managed portfolio over the long term. Well, that makes a lot of sense to me. Again, going back to golf... It's all about probability and how it plays a key role in shot selection. As we mentioned, hitting your driver off the tee box on a par four makes sense. Hitting your driver on the green, that doesn't make sense. Your probability is just off. So every shot on the course has a certain level of risk and reward. You need to assess the probability of successfully executing a shot and balance that against the potential reward. So for example, if you're facing a difficult approach shot over something like, I don't know, water or a sand trap, you might decide to lay up and take a safer shot rather than risking a penalty stroke. Wait, I have a way around that. Oh yeah? Some of the guys I play with, they don't lay up and they put it in the water and then they just don't take the penalty stroke. Oh, well, there you go. (laughs) You know, it's not quite as easy to cheat in investing as it is in golf. No, no. Just like in investing, you do need to consider the potential downside of a risky shot. So if the potential reward isn't worth the risk, it might be better to play it safe and take your chances on the next shot. When you're talking about probability, probably putting is the one area I think about the most. You need to consider things like the slope of the green, the distance to the hole, how hard do I have to hit the ball, the speed of the putt. All these factors impact the likelihood of sinking a putt. And I'm sure you've heard that saying, drive for show, putt for dough. Yep. Yeah, I mean, there's lots of people that can hit the ball a long ways, but then they get close to the green and maybe they three putt or something. Exactly. And there's actually data to support that approach. There was a study by Golf Digest that found that the average PGA tour player, so you would fall into that category. PGA, you mean, I don't know what, I'm I'm trying to think of something (laughs) witty, but I'm definitely not a PGA tour player. All right. Well, the average PGA tour player sinks 50% of putts from eight feet from the hole, but only 10% of putts from 25 feet. And I would say the average recreational player It's worse. It's 10% from eight feet and probably (laughs) 5% from something less. Unless your friends give you a gimme where they just sort of feel sorry for you because they don't want to see you miss that three-foot putt. That's right. It gets embarrassing after a while when you're into double digits on the scoring. It can. Well, I don't know if you recall these sayings, hockey stick, snowman, and Gordie Howe. Do you know what that is? No, I don't. Okay, so hockey stick is you scored a seven on that hole. A snowman is you got an eight. And a Gordie Howe is you got a nine because he yep. wore number nine. Right so on. Those are numbers you never want to see on your scorecard. But it just depends on where you're playing. If you're talking about playing in tournaments, 
Well, then probability comes into play when you're assessing your chances of winning. So every golfer has a certain probability of winning a tournament based on their skill level, the course, and the other competitors. And in investing, you need to consider the potential upside of a successful outcome. So when it comes to stock selection, there's a lot of data out there that suggests that probability plays a critical role in successful investing. For example, there was a study by BlackRock that found that stocks with higher probabilities of earning surprises tend to outperform those with lower probabilities. I love that, that higher earning surprises tend to outperform lower probabilities. So that's really interesting. So I know we've gone through this in previous episodes, but can you talk about earning surprises for our listeners? So when a company releases its quarterly earnings report, it includes information on how much money the company made and how much it spent during that period. If the company's earnings are higher or lower than what analysts were expecting, there's your earnings surprise. The way I describe it is this, when somebody asks me this question, if a company's earnings come in below what they expected them to come in, the stock tends to trade down. If the company earnings come in at exactly what the company had projected, the stock tends to trade down because they only met their earnings. So you're saying everyone was hoping to be surprised. Yeah. So if the earnings come in higher than projected, in reality, the stock tends to trade down because then the street's like, well, how do you replicate that next quarter? I know that goes against a little bit of what we're going to say here next. But when we're talking about stocks with higher probabilities of earning surprises and how they tend to perform better, I don't get that part. Where it gets really interesting is when analysts or other market prognosticators say, well, we expect an earnings surprise, which how do you expect a surprise? I mean, a surprise by its very definition should be something unexpected. So you expect an earnings surprise. And so if you don't get an earnings surprise, then you're disappointed and the stock could trade down. It's like stepping on the scale in the morning, expecting a weight loss surprise, even though you had half a pizza the night before. <laughs> That's right. right? Like, yeah. And yeah. then being frustrated that you didn't get the weight loss surprise, even though you know I what know. you did. I was hoping to be surprised and I wasn't. Okay, so. well, that makes sense. So do you okay. have any other examples of how probability plays a role in stock selection? An example of probability-based valuation models, one would be the discounted cash flow model. And these kinds of models attempt to estimate the present value of a company's future cash flows based on various assumptions, such as growth rates, discount rates, and risk premiums. I question the reliability of some of these models. I've studied them, dividend discount model, the Gordon growth model, all that stuff. What I've always found interesting is like when you're doing the dividend discount model, you look at a constant dividend discount model. What was the other term? A variable or increasing or dividend discount model. So in one form, you're expecting the dividend to stay constant forever. You're basing your expected return on the stock based off of this stable dividend of, let's say, 5%. But in the other form, you're pricing it based off of an expected growth of the dividend rate at some point in the future. Isn't that kind of funny? To say like you're basing the price of the stock in the future based off the expected growth rate of the dividend of the stock in the future to which you don't really know because it's based off of the corporate earnings to which you don't really know. That's right. So how reliable are these models, Greg? And that's the problem is that there are some investors that swear by them and others are more skeptical. And the main criticism is exactly what you were talking about is they're based on a lot of assumptions. And I'm just thinking here, I mean... Talk about discount rate, for example. 
two years ago, what were the estimates of discount rates? You know, discount rates are just sort of related to what people believe is the price of money, basically. It's like the risk-free rate or something. So just explain that. So it's like you're looking at future earnings and you're discounting it to the current value of those future earnings. That's right. And you discount it by a rate, which largely is based on, well, what's a risk-free rate? Last year it was 2%, let's say, and this year it's what? It's going to be what, 4%, 5% or something? Short-term T-bills are much higher. And so even something like the discount rate assumption can make a dramatic difference in current stock valuations. Well, yeah, because if you use a discount rate of 5% currently versus last year's discount rate of 0 to 2%, you know the punchline to this. Exactly. That's like, again, stepping on the scale after eating half a pizza and being surprised that you gained some weight. And I'm not talking about like a pizza pop. I'm talking about like no, a no, you're talking about inch a, deep dish. Uh, full on, yeah, you know, extra yeah. cheese. You got it. Like the way it's supposed to be. Okay. That's a fair point. So how can investors use probability-based models to make better investment decisions? One approach would be to use the models just as an input into a broader investment process. So you might use a discounted cash flow model to estimate the fair value of a company's stock, but you need to consider other factors such as a company's competitive landscape, the management team, the industry needs. Because that company probably has a clean balance sheet and excellent management, right? Exactly. And that's going to lead us into another discussion momentarily, <laughs> isn't it? I love that. When you're watching BNN or CNBC or whatever, and they've got an analyst on there and they talk about how a company has a clean balance sheet and excellent management. Well, first of all, how do you quantify that? Secondly, what does it really mean for the stock price? I mean, it's a good strategy, but it's important to remember that probability is just one tool in the investor's toolkit. So there's many other factors to consider when making those investment decisions. Does the company have a clean balance sheet and excellent management? Exactly. And the same goes for golf. I mean, probability is just one factor to consider when making shots on the course. You also need to consider your own skill level, the conditions of the course, and other factors that can impact the outcome of a shot. And here, when you talk about your own skill level, so this is my personal story. I stopped golfing about 30 years ago. The reason why I stopped golfing is because... You were asked to leave the course? Well, no, I was well behaved. <laughs> took a while though for me to get through a round. But the problem is I was a terrible golfer. I'd be swinging the club maybe a hundred times or more around. And the problem with golf was that occasionally, maybe two or three times out of that hundred, I would hit the ball perfectly or what seemed perfectly, it would make a good shot. It went the appropriate distance for the club I selected and went in the right direction. And there were times at first when I started playing golf, when that would happen, and I would think, I think I could get better at this game. Clearly, I have the ability to hit the shot. And then it occurred to me after a while that when you're swinging the club 100 times, just by random chance alone, you're probably going to connect properly with the ball. And it's not because of my skill that I made those three good shots. It was because of luck. And I was thinking back to our discussion about picking individual stocks and why, despite all of the analysis that you can do, whether it's a discounted cash flow model to estimate the current fair price of a stock, it's very difficult. There's more than those three or four factors that could come into what's going to affect the price of a stock. And so I think about many people who are out there trading stocks and occasionally they'll tell you about their winners. And the odds are their winners were winners by luck and not by skill. And if you pick enough stocks, you're going to hit some right ones. It's the old throwing the darts at the, when we used to have newspapers, 
Hey, you could throw your darts at the stock pages in the newspaper and maybe hit a winner. You should throw your dart at your iPad that has your stock quotes. Exactly. It wouldn't work that well. Well, I better not throw it at my phone when I'm holding yeah. it in my left hand. I was just thinking as you were mentioning that, I think a good way of describing it comes back to standard deviation and fat tails in that if you, in your golf game, just sort of charted out the distribution of outcomes in the middle, you'd have your average and roughly 50% of your shots would be slightly better than the average and 50% would be below the average. But you'd have these fat tails at the end of those distribution tails to which you would hit either a terrible shot that could not be replicated again or an incredible shot that could not be replicated again. Exactly. And that's what you're talking about when you get those one or two great shots out of that distribution of 100 shots. Now, you had the wherewithal to understand that that didn't mean that you were going to hit 98 more great shots. As a matter of fact, if you hit 98 more great shots, you'd be playing more than 18 holes at that point. That's right. So good for you for giving up. Exactly. (laughs) Well, it was a rational decision. It was like, okay, I'm not good at this, and I don't have time to actually take lessons and learn how to be better at it, and so I'll just give up. (laughs) That was my way to deal with it. Well, it happens. And you made an informed decision based on the best available data to yourself at that time. Exactly. Same for investing. So being mindful of the potential risks and rewards from the data set. Whether you're investing in stocks or playing that round of golf, understanding probability can help you make better decisions and achieve better outcomes. And another example of how probability plays a role in investing is something we've talked about a lot on this podcast, the Fama French three-factor model which is a well-known model used to explain and hopefully in some ways predict stock returns. This is actually one of my favorite discussions is when people talk about picking stocks and we bring up the Fama French factor model. And most people that work in finance know exactly who Fama and French are. I mean, these are well-known academics. Eugene Fama wrote, what was it, in the late 60s, the Efficient Market Hypothesis, and partnered up with a guy named Ken French, who is a professor at, is he at Dartmouth? The Dartmouth. And Eugene Fama is at University of Chicago. And they created this Fama French model on different factors. So can you explain for the audience, Greg, how the model works? Sure. Oh, wait, before you do, because it's a model that literally every finance student in the world will study at some point. So the Fama French model, which was originally from a paper, the cross-section of stock returns, it suggests that stock returns are affected by three factors, market risk, company size, and value, meaning valuation of the company. So market risk is represented by the return of the overall stock market, and size and value, again, are represented by market capitalization, that's the size. In this case, they use price-to-book ratios of individual stocks, respectively. And that can be a little confusing for some. A more common one we hear about is price-to-earnings ratios, but price-to-book is just another variation. It's just kind of a fundamental statistic that you can look at to compare companies to each other, essentially. So how does probability come into play with the Fama French three-factor model, which actually has been evolved to become the, I think it's the four or five-factor factors now. now. That's right. Well, the Fama French model assumes that stocks with smaller market capitalizations, which sometimes people will call small cap stocks, which is where that comes from. Hey, who are you calling small cap? Exactly. Don't take it personally. (laughs) And low price to book value ratios. So all that means is that relatively low price relative to the book value of the company 
compared to other stocks which might have higher prices relative to the book value of their companies. Companies with small market capitalizations and low price-to-book ratios have a higher probability of outperforming the market than stocks with large market capitalizations and high price-to-book ratios. And I know you're going to go through it, but tell me, Greg, is there data to support this theory, the Fama French factor model? Well, there's no data, but there's lots of data. Oh, right. Data. uh, We, We agreed on data. We did. So there have been multiple studies that have shown with stocks with small market caps and low price-to-book ratios tend to outperform the market over the long run. And one of the study, of course, was conducted by Fama and French themselves, who found that the size and value factors had significant impact on stock returns over not just long periods of time, but different geographical regions as well. So international markets, Canadian stock market, and the U.S. Now, you and I have been fortunate enough to sit in on presentations with Fama and French over the years. These are very smart people. Eugene Fama is known as the father of modern day finance. Exactly. And so the work that they've done is really interesting. And if I take it this way, if probability can help us identify which stocks are more likely to outperform the market, do I got that right? Which types of stocks for sure. And I think one of the things to keep in mind with the Fama French model is that because we're talking about probabilities, First of all, it doesn't mean that it's going to happen every year. And in fact, we went through the pandemic year 2020, where growth companies far outperformed value companies, the ones with low price-to-book ratios. And so it doesn't mean it's going to happen every year, but it means that the likelihood, hence probability, of it happening over long periods of time is quite good. And in that 2020-2021 period, I want to talk about one other fat tail that occurred, Kathy Wood, who runs ARC Innovation Fund. So it was during 2020 when she was invested heavily in large cap growth tech stocks and her fund just hit it out of the park. So this was in that same distribution on that standard deviation of outcomes. It was a fat tail. She hit the ball well. And then in 2021, 2022, and 2023, of course, large cap growth tech stocks have underperformed. As a result, her fund has drastically underperformed. Where am I going with this? I think the take-home message from this is that, as we've talked, there's no guarantees in investing. There's no guarantees in golf. In both of those, you make a choice. And the choice is, am I going to take the highest probability shot or am I going to take the low probability shot? That if it pays out, could be spectacular. And probability is one of those things I think Everyone wants to think of the upside and people don't want to think of the downside and probability or risk is two-sided. And when you talk about standard deviations or standard bell curves and things like that, it's like there's an upside and there's a downside risk. And so what you want to do, what we believe you want to do is you want to take the high probability shot. As you say, never mind trying to drive it over the water hazard or over the sand hazard. You know, maybe you want to just try to play it onto the fairway. and It's called laying up. Laying up. And I think that's what we try to do with our investing strategies is you want to go for the best probability. It's not a guarantee. It's not a guarantee that you're going to get better results, but it's the highest probability. And that's why when we build our investment portfolios, we want to go with the high probability outcome. Absolutely. We want to make sure we got the right club in our hands to make the right shot. That's all it is. Well, that was fun. 
after we record this podcast, I believe you yourself are going out to practice what you've learned on the links this afternoon. Yeah, I'm going to go golfing this afternoon with some friends and clients. Looking forward to it. But this will be top of mind as I'm on the green remembering that, what was it, PGA Tour players only hit... 50% from... Eight uh, feet. Eight feet, yeah. And I will test this theory that recreational golfers only hit 10% from eight feet. I'll be looking forward to seeing the data on that. The data, yes. Now listen, before we go, just want to remind our listeners to please feel free to give us a rating and some feedback on the shows. We haven't asked for that for a long time, Greg. No, we haven't. We do have a number of ratings that have been placed on our episodes on things like Apple Podcast. Mm -hmm. But please take the time to do that. We appreciate the feedback. I guess that's it. Right on. We'll see you next time. All right. Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc., 2023.